Okay, so I'm going to just jump right into it. We have a very lighthearted subject we're talking about today. Um, it's not controversial. And anyway, no, it's very controversial. Today, um, I'm starting a, a series that I'll do here and there throughout you know, the year. Uh, whenever we have kind of breaks in between our, our series, like today, where Draper's going to be talking about baptism, since they're doing a baptism, um, I'm going to be doing what's like what I call the I Am Woman series. Um, it's not a transgender series. Um, I know that was something that kind of came up when I was planning that. But it's more on what does the Bible say about women? What does it say about a woman? Um, and we're going to be looking through these series a number of very controversial verses. Um, where does all the controversy stem from, and, and what does the Bible actually say? Right? So this, for, this, for today at least, um, I'm looking at 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 15. I feel like this is probably one of the most controversial um, of all of the I Am Woman uh, passages that I'm going to look at. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the breakdown and, and why this is controversy, why is there so much division among the, the church today. Um, I don't know if everyone in here is going to agree with me. Uh, probably not, but that's okay. We're going to see that really, is it something that we should be divided over? Is it something that should hinder us from, from explaining the gospel to unbelievers and to the rest of the world? So we're going to put it kind of in a context, and then we're going to dive right into it. So please bear with me. We're going to be talking um, a lot about Greek today. We're going to be looking at the grammar, the literary styles, a little different of a sermon today, so uh, please bear with me because we're gonna—it's going to be pretty deep. We're going to look at it pretty, pretty thoroughly. All right, before I jump in, though, let, let's pray. Father, just to, just to be saved, just to be called out of death is is a huge blessing, a huge honor that you know me, that you know us by heart, and you know the very heads on our, our heads are numbered. You know us so deeply, you know us so intimately that. We can't even comprehend the love that you have for us. Lord, I just pray that whatever I say is, is truth. I never want to say something that is against your will. I never want to say something that is, that is false that you say against. And I just pray that um, your wisdom will, will flow, that your words will come from my mouth. It won't be something that is done through my flesh or something out of um, a, a biasness or anything like that, that is just purely what your word says and what, you, what principles you want to draw out to, to tell your body, to tell your people. I just pray uh, that this, this sermon, this uh, message will fall in, on people who, who need, need and desperately want to hear this message, that need the encouragement, that need the, the, the foundation of what you have to say about them. In your name, amen. Okay, so why study this topic of women in leadership and ministry? That's the first question I want to, want to answer. I mentioned before it's controversial. It divides among the body of Christ. We've seen that. We've seen that in this body. You guys have gone through that. We have gone through that as a church. Other churches have gone through this. We know the pain, the suffering, the hurt that that is, right? So we need to address it. We need to confront it. We it seems like you'll never really hear many sermons on this because it's scary for pastors to give. It divides, right? It, 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 they don't want to lose people. <laughs> and so one thing that I've learned from entering under 
um, Jody and Eric and Ira these last you know, four years is that we confront these issues. We, we attack them head on. We don't run away from them. And actually, this verse we're looking at correlates with that. It can also hinder the broadcasting of the good news of Jesus Christ. Obviously, you know, when it sees divide, if you're an unbeliever looking at a body of Christ that's divided, obviously, I know I wouldn't want to be a part of that. Right? It, just go on Facebook and say something about it, and you'll see division in five seconds. Right? But unbeliever sees that, they do not want to be a part of that. I mean, I've even had people who won't even partner with me to extend the gospel to non-believers because of my stance on this. And that, to me, seems very backwards. Right? The priority, there's something wrong with prioritization there. Right? When you don't even want to partner with somebody who believes in the same gospel as you, has the same Jesus as you, but has a different comprehension of something doctrinal, there's an issue with that. I think that's the problem, right? So we need, to, we need to put it in context. We need to be able to attack that so that there isn't a division, that there isn't this, this prioritization of, well, this is more important than the actual gospel of what Jesus did on the cross. Right? That's not the case in this, in this instance. You know, we, this verse, and, and it really, women in leadership and ministry, is actually built to encourage both men and women. It's built to build up. We're not supposed to shy away from, from women, stepping in, women stepping into leadership, women stepping into launching new ministries, launching revivals. Right? You women are actually called to lead. I believe that with my whole heart. You look at the whole Foursquare movement, someone that this church actually originated out of. Our founder was Amy Semple McPherson, a woman, where now we have 1,600 churches birthed out of that movement. 1,600 bodies of Christ across the world that were birthed out of her leadership. And then what I've noticed, especially in a lot of my LDS, um, you know, evangelizing or, or discipling, is that it's about 99% women that are coming out, right? And to me, that says something big. That says something that God is stirring in the hearts of the women in this county and in this state. That revival, that training, that change and transformation it very well may come through the ladies, right? So that's something I see, I observe through, through what God is doing. That's not something that I do. It's not something that I'm teaching. It's just something that I see. I'm observing it as we go. So obviously there's some kind of a movement happening. There's something happening in the stirring that God's doing with women. And so we want to make sure that we're properly teaching this. We don't want to hinder what God is doing in the body of Christ. Okay, what this study is not, okay, this is not... I am not sponsored by the LGBT agenda. Okay, I feel like if you Google women in ministry, the majority of it is, um, you know, radically, you know, sexually moral pastors, you know, um, LGBT. I mean, if you Google it, that's what comes up, right? That is not what I'm trying to do. I'm not a radical feminist, right, coming up here and talking about this, okay? I feel like it was important to say that because I know it seems like that's where the first, pe- first place people think of when you start hearing women in ministry and leadership is this weird radical feminist group. That is not who I am. That's not what I'm doing. I purely will be looking at the biblical text from the Greek, from what Paul actually spoke, looking at the literary styles from all of Timothy. And we're going to be looking at it from that kind of a standpoint in which we should view all scripture. Not just women in leadership, not just that, but everything I, everything I do as far as a sermon I give, I always look at the original context of the Greek, as we all should. And it's something you should do in your own studies yourself. You know, and one thing I am not trying to do is divide the body even more, okay? I am huge in the unification of the body. That's one thing that I see Utah County 
really blossoming in is being able to be unified across the board, to have a unified front when it comes against any kind of you know, spiritual warfare. I feel like the devil, all he wants to do is divide us, keep us divided so we don't work together. Right? And that's something that I don't want to do. It's not something that I hope that you go out and, and you confront some people who don't believe this and you cause more division. That's not the point of this. The, op- the opportunity for this is that you actually understand these difficult scriptures and you can then better explain them but not to cause division um, and not to cause um, more pain through the body, okay? Everyone on the same page with that? You guys all all got what I'm saying? Cool. One thing I want to jump into, too, in this kind of prelude into what the the verse I'm going to be talking about is something called dogma versus doctrine and opinion, okay? This is something they teach you in seminary, Uh, dogma, doctrine versus opinion, There's a number of things contained in the Bible that are dogmatic, that are doctrinal, and then there's things that we just have opinions on, okay? I like to say it as dogma is definitely something I would take a bullet for, okay? No doubt about it, I would take a bullet for this particular biblical principle in Scripture. Example of that is Christ died and rose from the dead. I will take a bullet for that. If someone said that's not true, I will confront that. I will say absolutely, I would die for that fact, right? There's extensive evidence, it's unchallenged by history and archaeology, and all biblical Christians have that part of the gospel, right? It's the same gospel. I don't preach that Christ never, you know, never existed or that Christ somehow never died on the cross, right? The gospel, the good news of Christ teaches that he died on the cross and he rose on the third day. Another one is our Great Commission, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Our goal here is to make disciples, right? Every biblical Christian church will teach that principle. Right, that our goal here is to go into the world and make disciples of Jesus. And you see that at third point, the same gospel, the same good news. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Those are dogmatic issues. Right? Those are things that I would absolutely go to my grave for. And then we have a second level, the doctrinal level. Now, this is something I have a great, strong passion for. I may take some bullets for a few of these, right? But it's not something I'm going to want to... I'm not dogmatic about them, right? Like some of these would be, is baptism sprinkle or immersion, right? People have really strong opinions about these, right? But I don't think the Bible really, if you look at what baptism is in general, sprinkle or immersion, it really doesn't matter on the big scope of things, right? Same with Sabbath day. Is it Sunday? Is it another day? I don't know, right? We do it on a Sunday. I mean, I really think that Sabbath can be any day of the week, right? If Tuesday you have a day off and you can actually rest, more power to you. Right? But some churches, they really hold Sundays, but I'm not going to go to these churches and say, you're preaching heresy because Sabbath is, they use this on a Sunday. I'm just not going to do that, right? It's a doctrinal thing. It's things that you might take bullets for, but really is something that, um, it's more based on biblical exegesis, which just means the, the pulling out and how you interpret it. And then you have opinion. This is something I definitely wouldn't take a bullet for, because no one really knows. Post-tribulation and pre-tribulation is, is part of what I call the opinion. No one knows. It's going to happen. We just don't know exactly how. Is it, is it pre-trib? Is it post-trib? It's Revelation. Read the book of Revelation. Everyone has an opinion on it, right? It's, it's something that's coming, but we don't know exactly what it means, right? Everyone has opinions on it, okay? It's important to know. It's important to read. It's important to, to understand, but like the whole book of Revelation really is a lot of imagery and has a lot of opinions on it, right? And so those are kind of the three levels. You have dogma, doctrine, opinion. What, what we're looking at today is a doctrinal issue, it is not a dogmatic issue. It becomes a dogmatic issue, and then people get divided. 
See how that happens there? If we keep it in priority and realize, okay, this is a doctrinal level. It's on the same level as a Sabbath day, as a baptism as far as sprinkling or immersion, right? Like, you're never going to have anybody come into a church or someone, they may debate it. Christians debate everything nowadays. That's why, that's one of the issues I have with the Western church is we have way too much time debating theology instead of being out in the world, actually making disciples, <laughs> But we love to debate doctrinal issues. We really don't debate dogmatic issues because we're on the same page. Right? But when you take this type of topic and you put it into a dogmatic stance, that's when you see the division. That's when you see the bodies divided. Right? We need to make sure that that's not the case. We're not talking about a dogmatic issue. We're talking about a doctrinal issue. And even some circles may even be an opinionated issue. Right? That's what we're seeing as in the level of importance of this. Okay? It is not a, uh, I guess one important issue too I should bring up as far as doctrinal versus dogmatic is this is not a salvitic issue. You know, we're not talking about a salvation issue with this. Okay? And we're going to explain that because this passage, it can be miscued to be that very thing. Right? And this is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about an issue that has anything to do with salvation. And the women in ministry and leadership has nothing to do with salvation. It's a doctrinal issue. Salvation is a dogmatic issue. Amen to that? Okay. So let me give you a little more. Um, let me explain the, the atmosphere of today's um, scope of I am, or uh, of women in ministry. Really, there's two kind of groups that have come out that are very black and white, complete opposites in each other. So I thought real quick I'll just go over the atmosphere of what this, why there's so much controversy in this. So the first group that we see, we hear about this word, is we're complementarian. It's a very theologian-type word. You, know, you find that theologians love to come up with really long, complex words to come up with things. Right? They teach you in seminary not to ever use those words because no one knows what they're talking about because they're kind of made up. We made them up to kind of name stuff to the Bible. Complementarian. You see two of the big head guys in this one is John Piper, Wayne Grudem. Both guys I respect, love them. I love the stuff that they say. Great podcast. I mean, I listen to John Piper probably every day. Wayne Grudem literally wrote a book on systematic theology. Right? Great guys. But they are kind of the complementarian headwigs here. They focus on what's called hierarchy. And they, have, they say it's a distinctive roles between men and women that complement each other. That's where we get that word complementarian. Right? So they're focused on a hierarchy. There's a hierarchy of, of roles that God has actually distributed throughout the, the, you know, his creation. Now, I'm not going to go into real depth of it. I just want to briefly scope over what these are. But one quote I have is, reflects both equality and beneficial differences between men and women, the latter including a special leadership role for men in the church and the home. So they are saying that women are not to be in a ministry or spiritual leadership, church leadership, local leadership. They really have, they have a hard time defining what level it is, I've noticed. Is it local leadership? Is it movement leadership? How is it defined? It's very gray in that area. And then Wayne Grudem writes, My own conclusion on this issue is that the Bible does not permit women to function in the role of pastor or elder within the church. Okay? So there's the complementarian stance. Right? And then on the exact opposite, we have egalitarians. So these are guys like Millard Erickson, who wrote another book called Christian Theology, which is the one I used all through seminary. And I went to a Southern Baptist seminary, which really shocked me. Um, and then Douglas Gruheis, who's a professor out of Denver Seminary, American Baptist again, but they're both very strong egalitarians. What they focus on is equality. One of them writes, Egalitarianism rejects the notion that any office, ministry, opportunity should be denied anyone on the grounds of gender alone. 
So they're focused more on the characteristics, right? What kind of character do these people have? What kind of, you know, are they, are they living in sin while trying to be leaders? That's what they're focusing on, not necessarily judging on a gender race. Millard Erickson, in his book, Christian Theology, wrote, On balance, regarding women in church leadership roles, however, the greater evidence appears to support the position of full access to these pastoral, apostle, deacon, etc. ministries of women. He states later that one, exa- one must examine what God has done. God does seem to have used women in prophecy, and the argument distinguishing prophecy from teaching is unconvincing. Okay? So these are two or four powerhouse theologians, doctorals, teaching in universities, seminaries, that bash. Right? So as, as, bodies, as being in the body of Christ, you can see why this is so complex and extremely frustrating. Because you have so many doctoral theologians, right, popular pastors, right, that are so divided. So how can that be, right? Now, for myself, I don't really fit into any one of these. I think that it's wrong for us to even have these lines. I really do. I think the complementarian egalitarian argument is, uh, is more dividing than anything else. Because what happens is you become identified with one of these. Your, identify, your identity doesn't belong to Christ. It belongs, I'm a complementarian, I'm an egalitarian, therefore we can't, we can't work together. There's the issue, right? For me, I don't see myself in the way of, and I don't see either one of these answering the question completely, right? I don't really know where I fit. I'll call myself a Bibleist because I don't fit in any one of these categories. I think that obviously there's roles for men and women in the household. I think as men, we are the headwaters for the spiritual health of the family, right? But I don't see that necessarily leaking over into the body, Egalitarians, I completely agree with equality and that we should really see that people are called into ministry and leadership off of based off of their gifts, off of what God has bestowed upon them. Right? But they also reject the complete idea, I, I, the complete idea of roles within the household. Right? So I don't fit into either one. So you're coming from a third-party perspective, an alternate view. I actually wrote a, a, a work on this. If you'd like to read it, let me know. But it basically spells out the complementarians, egalitarians, and then this alternate view that's becoming somewhat popular now. Um, and so I can get you that if you have more interest in that. But I wanted to give you at least kind of where everybody stands in, in this controversy. Okay? If anything you leave today, you understand why this is a controversy and where the atmosphere is in this. Okay. So let's dive into the fun stuff. So the controversial scriptures, so there's probably four or five that, are, that you hear about the most. I think 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 15 is probably the one um, that is probably picked on the most. And it's, it's really unfortunate because everyone misses the real point of this chapter. And it's an extremely important chapter. It says a lot about who God is. It says a lot about who his people are. But we focus on the wrong thing. We focus on the wrong aspect. And we're going to view that. So first off, I just want to read it. So if you have your Bibles, or I have it up on the screen too, I'm going to be looking at 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 15. And I'm going to be using the New International Version, the NIV today. Um, that was one I grew up with. That's one I chose. I feel like for this, it, it does stay pretty accurate to the Greek as well, which you'll find out too soon. So I'm just going to read it out loud for you. And then we're going to break it up into pieces and go through it. It says, I urge then... First of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. 
This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's important. I underline that. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for the purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should, mu- should learn in quietness and full submission. Here's the controversy. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Yeah, right? You read that in English and you're going, whoa. So we're going to break this up. We're going to look at it. We're going to look at the context, and we're going to look at the literary styles first. Okay, And then we're going to go back and revisit the, the passage. First, what is happening in Ephesus? Okay, Timothy is a, a young pastor. He kind of got abandoned there by Paul. He's more likely maybe early 20s, you know, much even six, seven years younger than I am, if you guys can imagine, you know, poor Timothy. Now, he's in Ephesus, which is kind of the, the Roman capital, what they call Asia Minor, which is basically nowadays Western Turkey. I had to, like, do my northeast stuff. Uh, Western Turkey, right on, the Aegean, or right on the Aegean Sea. Now, in Ephesus, there was, you know, talk about spiritual warfare, <laughs> There was a temple there called the Temple of Artemis. It was actually one of the ancient wonders, or one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, it was as big as an Olympic theater or an Olympic playing field. It was massive. They said a whole mountains were taken down in order to build this, this temple. Right? So it was a huge place for people from all over the Roman Empire to flock to. Right? It was a huge site. It was a great place to go for if you were a pagan. And the problem is Artemis is the goddess of fertility. So the priestesses are renowned for obviously their beauty. They walk around topless. And their ceremony were, were very sexual. right? So this is the atmosphere. And that was the, the majority of what Timothy is going up against. Imagine the, tr- the hardships of having a body that's coming out of that. right? And what we see in, in the first chapter of Timothy we see that Paul is addressing Timothy because of false teachers from both external false teachers, and there's even false teaching happening from internal ranks. So not only is Timothy dealing with the the pagan influences of the Temple of Artemis, but he's also dealing with false teaching from inside his own body and outside of the body as well. We have Judaizers from you know in Galatia, and Paul actually references the Judaizers in Galatia. We have to imagine that he's seeing the same thing happen in Ephesus. It's, it's nearly a hop and a skip from Galatia to Ephesus, nearly the next region over. Obviously, there's other people coming up with their own ideas. You study the ancient, you don't study the history of the first century church, and everyone has all of these strange ideas about and influences from paganism, from um, all these different heretical you know, sects that are coming out of it. Early church fathers are always addressing these false teachers, and so all, a lot of this is coming out of the Ephesian church. 
He says in 1 Timothy 1.3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so you may command people, this is all people, both men and women, not to teach false doctrines. False gospels is what he says in this, any longer. Right? So his, his address to Timothy is so that you will command all people not to teach false gospels any longer. That is one of the main reasons he's writing this letter to Timothy. Right? So he's teaching him, okay, we've got to address these false gospels that are coming both externally and internally. One interesting thing about Ephesus is that it was actually founded, helped founded by a woman. Priscilla and Aquila based out of Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila were one of the first ones to actually start the, the body of Christ there. They taught Apollos in Ephesus. Ephesus was a big kind of central point, big crossroads within the empire. So there were a lot of people. And so they said, well, let's, let's start here. This is a great place to start. So Priscilla and Aquila actually came, and Priscilla being one of the founding members. Which is interesting why Paul would want to prohibit women from teaching when one of the founders was actually a woman. Right? It just doesn't, it doesn't match with what he's saying. And also Phoebe, the deacon, she was, supposed, she was said to have been welcomed in full honor. Um, and she was actually called a deacon or even an apostle, a messenger. She was actually sent with a message. And so here we have an example in, in the very context of Ephesus of two women held to high regard. Actually one being the founder of the church in Ephesus. So it would be strange for Paul to condemn women teachers in general, even though he had Priscilla and Phoebe both teaching there. Right? So there's got to be some contextual issue. Why is he saying this? Right? And that's what we're going to look at today. All right, so then the literary style. So Paul writes in a very distinct style. He always has. He's very educated. And he reads both Greek, Hebrew, Latin, Arabic, or, or not Arabic, Aramaic. And so he keeps to a certain literary style. Now, before I jump into the actual style, too, I want to talk about the themes. So the major theme in this is God wants to save everyone. Okay, can you say that with me? God wants to save everyone. That's the main theme. Verse 4, all people, no gender specifications, you know, all people, everybody. Anthropos, as the Greek says, that's human beings. Okay, all humans. God wants to save you know, he's not talking about women were, were subhuman or secondary. They have the same Celtic rights as man and full authority under one mediator, Jesus Christ. Right? Man, woman, you both have the same mediator, the same human, Anthropos, Jesus, who came to earth as an Anthropos, human. They have the same one. We're both issues. That's not an issue with this. Okay? You're, both are saved through what Jesus did on the cross. And then Paul's concerns for Timothy, and then Paul's concerns for the Ephesian church. Right, those are the other two themes he has. Now you'll see Paul will address Timothy, and then he'll address the church. And then he'll address Timothy, and then he'll address the church. He addresses a plural, plural, plural people, and he'll address a singular person. He'll address plural, and he'll address singular. You'll see that. It's what they call the ABAB literary interchange. There's a big fancy word for you. So you see instructions for Timothy, singular person, instructions for the church, plural. We see this verses 1 through 7. This is how I'm kind of going to break it up for us. Verses 1 through 7 addresses all people, anthropos. So when it says man, that's human, mankind, okay? Verses 8, he's addressing men. That's the first time he uses the word enter. That's, that's man. That's, you know, I'm a man, right? Not I'm a human, but I'm an actual gender-specific male. Okay, verse 8, he's addressing them. Verse 9 and 10, he goes back to the plural. He says, all right, now I'm going to address all women. Okay, so we see the, the plural word for women in this. 
And then 11 through 15a, he does something extremely interesting. He drops all, the, he drops all of the, um, the, the, the plurality and falls into a pronoun of a singular. Why does he do that? If he's talking about all women in general, he would have just stayed within the plurality. Right? <coughs> he uses words like she and a woman. Right? There's some reason why he goes into a singular mode instead of a plural mode, and we're going to look at that. And then in verse 15b, he then does a switch back to plural. Now, this is not weird. This is really weird for us to do in English, right? But in Greek, it's totally normal. It's totally normal. There's, that's why Greek is so hard to read sometimes, because it's hard, you have to first find where everything is and then put it together like a big puzzle, right? We weren't speaking Koine Greek. We don't know how Koine Greek was spoken. It's like the street Greek. It's like the slang Greek. It's the dirty Greek. It's the, you know, the Greek that they used. But what we see is we see these, these Greek patterns that Paul writes in, right? And it's really hard for English speakers to look at that and go, okay, how do we properly relay what he's saying here, right? What we see is pronoun. We see a first person. We see singulars. We see plurals. You guys were getting a, a grammar lesson today. You didn't know that, did you? But it's very important for the, for the context of this. The biggest things I want you to see he's going, he's doing all men, or he's doing every human, men, women, a, a particular woman, and then switches back to all women. Okay? All right, so let's jump into I'm going to skip one through seven for now. We're going to come back to we're going to come back to it at the end. And we're just going to look at verse eight. We're going to start with verse eight at least. So, verse eight, the men of Ephesus. So this is the, the male gender people of Ephesus. He says, Therefore I want the men, enter, everywhere to, to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Again, this is the first time he uses the word man, gender specific, not the word. For man, you human. He didn't use anthropos anymore. He uses aner. He is calling men of Ephesus to pray in the dark times of spiritual warfare. He says in, the, in verse 1, it says, I urge you therefore. That therefore means he's referring to something prior. He's saying, okay, because of this, you must do this. And be, what happens is we see in the first, first chapter, he's talking about the false teaching. right? So he says, because of these false teaching, this is what you do to combat it. Not avoid it, not be afraid of it, not run away from it, not hide, hide away from it. He says, no, what you do is you pray. You lift up holy hands without anger or disputing. He says, don't go after these guys with anger. Don't go after these guys disputing them. In an angry thing, dispute as far as a negative connotation. It's not like a positive rebuke. He says, that's what they do. Men, you don't do that. You pray. You pray with lifting hands. That's his instructions to the men. Right? Don't shy away from false teaching, but pray through it. Pray through the struggle. Okay? You're called to live without anger and disputing. You're called not to live that way. You're called to live differently. Be different than what the pagans did and the Judaizers did and the Jews are doing, the ones that are persecuting you, the ones that are making life difficult. Be different than them. Don't be angry and disputive. Pray. Be different. That's what he's calling the men of Ephesus to do. And then in verse 9 and 10, the women of Ephesus. He says, I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now that word, that Greek word for I also, it also can mean likewise. That's why I like the NIV. It says I also. Also is saying that you do that too, women. Right? He's not saying men, okay, you guys pray. Women, okay, you guys dress good. Or dress more appropriately, and then we'll be good. He says, no. 
Women, you also pray. Men, also don't find your worth in clothes. Hear that, Jim? No more wearing pearls. Okay? Jim's my pick-on guy, so I had to throw it in there at least once. (laughs) So women should also pray and stay away from anger and disputing. Okay? So it's a connection. He's not dividing it up. He's saying in the same way. Women pray with lifting, up, lifting holy hands and do not go with anger and disputing. And he's going to say the same thing with men. Men, dress modestly with decency and propriety. You know, allow your good deeds to be, be what your worship of God is. And then one key word in that is the word profess. Now, he is, he is talking to the women in particular, but he's also including the men. But that word profess to worship God, what does that word profess actually mean? Right? Can you profess to someone in silence? No, you can't. Can you profess in secret? Not really. Profess by itself comes with the that you're professing to somebody. Right? You're professing something to somebody. Paul uses Paul uses many different words in the same literary context or in the same uh, kind of literary cousins. He uses words like to tell, to announce, to herald, to evangelize. To declare, all of them come with the with the preset of a messenger. So what he's saying is, is women. He's talking about the godly women in Ephesus, for one. Go tell, profess, go announce, go herald, go evangelize, go declare, because you worship God. Right? He's telling them to do this, to tell people about God. Interesting, isn't it? You cannot profess in silence or private. Logically, Paul was telling the women to dress appropriately so that those who profess to announce and herald to God aren't not, they're not shown vanity. Pearls in the Roman Empire were a huge sign of vanity. That was like the, oh, look how pretty I am with my pearls, right? It was pure vanity, okay? And so he's like, don't do that. Be different. You don't, you know, especially if you're telling people about God, what's that going to say if you're wearing pearls and people are like, this is some prosperity gospel person. Right? That's, what, that's using today's terminology. Right? So he's saying, don't be like that. Right? If there's no gender-specific commands within this, and even Chrysostom, the very, he's an early church father of the first century, he actually probably even knew John, the Apostle John. He even adds the word pray with, in 9 and 10 because he understood that verses 8, about the men being praying with holy hands, coincides also with the women. Okay? So these are interchangeable. Women, you should also pray with, with lifting hands and don't go in anger and dispute. Men, you should also not wear elaborate hairstyles or golds or pearls or expensive clothes. You know, but with good deeds appropriate for women, and you could put in their parentheses, men who profess to worship God. Okay, so men and women both do these things. It's not gender specific. Okay, that's that word likewise that connects the two. Does that make sense? So we're not seeing gender specific commands yet. Okay, now we get to the, the real interesting 11 through 15a. This is where the big line comes, okay, the big divider. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner, but women will be saved through childbearing. All right, so let's look at 11 through 12 first. So here, Paul is addressing a singular woman. Okay? This is where it gets a little interesting. 
Now, why does he go from plurals into singular? All the research I've done, I've read countless complementarians, egalitarians, alternate views, everything. I've looked at the Greek myself, um, Hebrew, Jewish, rabbinic literature. I mean, everything that I could get my hands on, this is what I came up with. And this is what a lot of doctorials, um, a lot of women, people, a lot of men who actually study women ministry, that is what they do. This is their, their, this is their take on it, okay? He's addressing a particular woman in Ephesus. There's no other reason why he went from plural to singular. There is a woman in Ephesus who is false teaching internally. Okay? Grammatically, all pronouns disappear in this shift from verse 11 to 15a. They're all about a singular woman. He says, a woman. He says, she must be silent. She will be saved through childbearing. Now, English, we have no problem being like, well, if it's a singular, that can still mean everybody. But the Greek can't do that. Right? English, the English translation has no issue going, well, it's still talking about all women in, gen- all women in general. But that's not how Paul wrote. That's not the literary style he's doing. He's not going plural, singular, plural, singular. He's not going plural, 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 singular. Right? He's talking about a particular woman both in literary context, Ephesian context, and the Greek backs this up. NIV actually kind of stays true to it when it says a woman. Right? When it says a woman in the NIV, it even recognizes the singular. A lot of translations don't because they just assume it's a plurality. But the Greek, you look at it, all plural nouns disappear. It's a singular person. Fits grammatically within the ABAB, literary interchange, and then it goes into the if they, which it returns to the plural. Which is why when you read your Bibles, there'll be a dash in between the 15A, 15B, because the translators weren't quite sure how to handle this. They go, well, it goes to the plural all of a sudden. So he's talking about a singular, singular person within the, those 11 through 15A. So you see women, woman, women, A-B-A. So he was telling Timothy how to address a certain situation with a certain Ephesian woman, not all women exclusively. And you can quote me on that, okay? That's what, the, that's what the Greek and the context looks like. The submission of women doesn't fit the submission of women, the hierarchy of women, that somehow women should be subservient to men within the church, doesn't fit the grammar contained within this book, within that passage. It just doesn't. It can't fit. You have to twist it in order to make it fit. You have to isogeet it. would mean you have to put meaning into it, not pulling meaning out of it. Okay? It's most likely a false teacher, some false teaching woman, from within the body itself. Now, it's not the first time that Paul talks about a false teacher without actually giving a name. Can anybody tell me the name of the man who committed incest in Corinth? No? doesn't give it to us. What about the, the Cretan that Titus, he reads Titus about? We have no idea whose name is either. It's, it wouldn't be the first time that Paul do, doesn't say someone's name, and I'm going to tell you why I think he does that. But that's one of the first things you'll hear in the rebuttals is, well, he doesn't give a name. Why doesn't he give a name? And we're going to talk about it. So, we, it's important to go back. Let me go back for a second. So, many women were involved both in false teaching. He says in, in various ports in, the, in Timothy, it says, if anyone teaches false doctrines. Okay, he's not talking if any man teaches false doctrines. He's talking about anyone. So, it's, it's implied that both men and women are teaching false doctrines. And he says, command certain people, both male and female, not to teach false doctrines. Command certain people. Again, not gender specific. 
1 Timothy 4, 7 literally says that Timothy needs to avoid old wives' tales. Okay? We know women were involved in false teaching from 1 Timothy 5, 13. Young women were saying things they ought not to. Okay, he's addressing false teachings. And it's both men on the women's side. 2 Timothy 3, 6, 7, it says, In the context of weak-willed women loaded down with sin, swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. So there's, a, there's some problem with the women who are coming out of these Ephesian, Artemis, kind of uh, priestly cults of, of dividing what was true and what was not true. And Paul is saying, continue to teach them. Don't give up on them. Right? Paul's are intimidated to correct those who are preaching false, talk, false teachings. Teach these women, he says. Teach them. In verse 11, it says, a woman should learn in quietness. That should is not really the correct way that I would have probably translated the imperative. It's an imperative. He's saying, Timothy, you must, you must teach. This woman must learn. And it was said, why does it say quietness and full submission? Well, that's a rabbinic thing, right? The rabbi is to teach you learn in quiet. You can't learn if you're talking, Right? And so he's, he's going back to his rabbi days, and he says, you have to learn, this woman must learn to learn, or she must learn in quietness and submit to you, Timothy. That's the only way she's going to learn. He's not talking about a, the women in general, all women. He's talking about a particular one who's teaching false things. You know, we don't get a name from Paul often um, just because of the fact that he wants to see this person redeemed. But he mentions three men I can't remember the names, Alexander, Hymenius, and, and someone else. But he also says that they, he's kind of let them go. Right? That he's, he's kind of surrendered them over to Satan at this point, right? He's, they're gone. He doesn't mention names in Corinth. He doesn't mention names here in Ephesus. He doesn't mention names in Crete because he wants to see them restored. Imagine if you got called out in a letter, <laughs> right? In front of your body. This is what you're doing. You think you'd ever want anything to do with, with the body again? If you were called out on the whole scale? No. He's talking to Timothy. He's like, this, this letter will be read aloud to the Ephesians most likely. So I'm not going to say a name. Timothy knows who I'm talking about. Right? Makes a little sense now, right? I hope. So why does he say the word Authority. So there's a lot of research around this. I'm not going to dive into a lot of what authority is. But taking up a single unnamed woman who was authentane. That's the word authority he used. It's only used one time in the whole New Testament. This is the only instance it's used, right? Paul was very, very careful about words he used. He wasn't someone who just randomly threw random Greek words in. But he's talking about this particular woman who is usurping authority or domineering authority over people. Right? It's not women in general doing this because he's talking about godly women professing that they worship God. Profess means to go tell somebody. He's talking about this particular woman. He says, do not let her usurp authority over people, over the men, over the people we've had placed in, in place there, right? She's domineering it. Simply, she didn't qualify for the spiritual leadership that Paul gave in Timothy one and 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. She just didn't qualify for spiritual leadership. And then he goes into Eve. So why does he bring in Eve? Eve is used as a single example of another woman deceived. I 
another single entity to a woman. Right? He's saying while Adam he was told was told directly from God not to eat of the fruit, Eve was actually the one deceived. And he's talking about the same example with this woman in Ephesus, the unnamed woman. She was deceived. She doesn't know. Teach her. Teach her. She was deceived, deceived by a lie, just as Eve was. And it's funny because Adam gets way more in trouble in Genesis than Eve does. Eve goes, I, I was deceived by the serpent. And Adam's like, yeah, it was that woman, man. And he gets the brunt, right, more than Eve does. God understands the deception. I always thought that was interesting. So people were believing a lie and just as Eve believed a lie. Just as this Ephesian woman did. So there was nothing in this passage to warrant a silence of godly women. Silence the false teachers is what he's saying. And this could be a man or female. It just happens to be a woman in this instance. Silence the, the false teachers. Teach the false teachers. Again, in verse 10, he calls women to profess God, to teach God, evangelize God. Women need to communicate their faith in both word and deed. That's what he's saying. Women who follow God profess. That's what they do. All right, the childbearing. This was one that, yeah, it's pretty interesting, right? If you, re- if you read this, you have no idea the context. You're like, wait a minute. I'm single. I may never have a baby if I'm not saved, right? This is where people who really don't understand Scripture will go dogmatic on you and, and condemn women, right? It's... It's really sad and really not accurate. So obviously, I'm just going to say it up front. Women, you were not saved through your ability to procreate. Okay? Let's just get that out of there. Um, Childbearing in this context is actually used as a noun in this sentence. It has a direct object, a the in Greek. So he's talking about the childbearing. There's a the childbearing instance. So what does that mean? Now, Scholars will go back and forth on what this means, but I really think, and a lot of other um, theologians will back me up on this, that it's a direct connection to Genesis, to Genesis 3.15 of the promise that Eve will bear a child. That she's, not, she's, that she's saved through the childbearing, the biggest childbearing of all time, the coming of Jesus Christ. The child Jesus, born of a woman. Paul talks about this. She was born of a woman. The childbearing instance. She will be saved through the childbearing, the, Jesus, the child Jesus Christ. The greatest act of childbirth ever. The event, the childbearing event. That's what he means by this, because of that direct object. In English, again, we struggle with figuring out the meaning of that. But if you look at the Greek, you'll see the direct object there, which changes everything. It's not a verb. He's not talking about the act of childbearing. He's talking about the event of childbearing. The event of childbearing, the coming of Christ. You guys getting some out of this? Is this this good stuff? Okay. So that's the singular. And then we see him wrapping up the verse with 15b, which he goes back to the plural. If they continue in faith, love, holiness, and and with with propriety. Okay? This is his direct correlation to everybody. This is his exclamation point at the end of the chapter. He says, all these people I just talked to, the woman, the women, the men, all people... Continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. He wraps it all up. He puts them all in the end. He finishes the ABAB interchange for this chapter by returning to the plural. Plural, singular, plural, singular, plural, singular. Timothy Church, Timothy Church, women, 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 women. It's the same literary style. Paul wants all women to live in faith and all people to live in faith, love, holiness, with propriety. He's rounding up his thoughts, culminating in a culminating 
to the direction of women, but encompassing men as well. Okay? So it's the, it's the wrap-up of chapter 2. He has to finish with the plural. That's his literary. That's the style he, he decided to write in. So what do we get out of this chapter? Right? What do we get out of this? We know, um, you know he's talking about this particular woman in Ephesus who's a false teacher. He says you have to teach him. Men, women, all of you pray, live accordingly to where you profess to know God. But I think the biggest part of this chapter, and this is sad because nobody looks at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. They can't wait to get to 11, right? It skips over, and I think 1 through 7 is the whole point of what he's trying to say to Timothy. But we don't even look at it. He says, who, and I, I pulled one little verse out. He says, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth? God wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. That is the whole point of what he's trying to say in chapter 2. That's why he addresses men. That's why he addresses this woman. He wants them to learn. He wants them to be encouraged, as he does everybody. Learn the truth. Battle false teachings. How do we do that? Pray. You pray through the hardships. You pray through people who do false teachings. Pray that that will happen. God doesn't want to stifle women or shut them out. That has nothing to do with this verse. Nothing to do with this chapter. As pure us putting meaning into the text, which is completely, absolutely inappropriate when you're studying the, the word. All authority is God's anyways, and he gives it to all believers, male and female. We see that all through the biblical narrative. All authority is God's, and he bestows to all those who believe. All those who believe is not gender-specific. Women and men must be taught the truth and profess their mouth, profess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, as Romans says. Again, for all believers. My biggest issue with this whole women in ministry leadership concept is that we are spending so much time on it. So much of our power is spent thinking about this idea. And if you look at the context, the heart of God within these chapters, we're missing it completely. We live in a world of false teaching. It surrounds us. We live with opioid addictions. We have Syria where entire families are getting wiped out. Yet at the Western Church, we're so stuck on can women teach? Of course they can. All believers can. We're called to profess. We need to stop bickering about doctrinal differences. Can women teach? What day is the Sabbath? Who cares? Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead, and has given me a new life. That's the message of hope. That's the message that we cling to. Sure, we confront people who who teach falsely, but we don't do it with anger, we don't do it with disputing, we do it with love. We do it through prayer. We do it by lives that have been changed. You know, I'm so sick of the division within the body. Of brothers and sisters who who don't want to collaborate because of some minute issue that has nothing to do with the extension of the kingdom. Because that all Satan wants to do is get us focused on little tiny issues that break us apart. And what did Jesus say? A house divided will not stand. 
There must be a call of unification within the body, both in Utah, the country, the world. There must be unification. There must be some kind of unified effort. Because we only stand under one banner. We're not identified by any doctrinal differences. We're identified purely by our our belief and our faith in Christ. I don't care if you're complementarian, egalitarian, flagellarian. I just made that up. You're identified by who you are in Christ alone. That's all that matters. That's the big issue. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that this this message will put to rest an issue that maybe people get distracted from. An issue that can be so burdensome to some and, and cause so much pain and anguish. The loss of friends, the loss of, of loved ones who, who, who just cut relationships, Lord, for no reason. Because that's not what you do. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's not you. Lord, I just pray for unity among the body today. I pray that doctrinal differences we put aside. And we will be able to see your word as you originally intended it to be. Even if people don't completely agree with, with what I'm saying today, that they will put away any kind of bitterness or hate or anger or, or negative disputation and just come together as the body of Christ for a common goal to make disciples of all nations. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the marching orders. That is the goal. Lord, I pray you stir in the hearts of people who want nothing to do with, with brothers and sisters because of some weird doctrinal difference. I pray you show them what's actually important, what actually matters. This entire chapter is about you. It's all about you. It's all about what you want to see happen. You want to see people educated. You want to see people know. You want to see people learn the truth. Lord, I pray you raise up teachers, both male and female, who can go out into this world, who can profess their love for you to people around them. They will not shy away just because of some, someone indoctrinally had told them, you can't do this because of your gender. Your word says nothing of the sort. For they are believers, all under the authority of Christ, all in equality. Give them boldness. Give us confidence. Give us wisdom to be able to go and profess, to teach, to educate, to evangelize this county, this community. And that they can be confident and bold into what they have. That's Christ in you, the only hope for glory. Thank you, Lord, that I was able to come and bring this message. A message that I feel was so desperately needed. Again, all we do is seek the truth of what you write. And I pray that this word will change hearts, will change minds, will reprioritize what's actually important. 
And that is you, your good news, your gospel, what you did on the cross, trumps everything. Thank you, Lord, for this body, for these people. Give me love. We want to see them built up, encouraged, trained in the ways of righteousness so they can go out and make massive impacts. They can live their dreams. They can impact their worlds. And they can live a life completely devoted, full of abundance, full of future, full of hope. That's what you promise. It won't always be easy. It will be hard. It will be a difficult journey uphill. I feel like swimming uphill against the current. But we can hold on to those promises of a future because of a hope. Because you love us. Because we are your children adopted into the faith by our belief in you. Thank you, God. In the name of Jesus Christ, the name that holds all authority in both heaven and on earth and the creator of all things, in whose authority I come in today. Amen. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for coming. I think that Sarah has put out some food in the main cafe. You don't mind a little bat smell? <laughs>